0: This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Hannah Fletcher, a design program manager at Facebook, what's the biggest challenge with designing for Facebook? And here's what she said.
1: I would say there are so many things going on uh, within our design team separate from the work that we are, um, you know, producing for the product and, you know, we have a Facebook design lecture series, Uh, we bring students in to teach them about design, Um, we have um, extensive onboarding programs and so there are just so many different things to be a part of here and I think one of the most challenging things for me as a program manager is really picking the, you know, the right programs to run with, and knowing um, what to ruthlessly prioritize. And uh, ruthless prioritization is something that we talk about a lot here because there's just so much energy and so many things going on, and so sometimes you have to be uh, ruthless in determining what you'll be working on.
0: Ruthless prioritization. It's not bad. Find out more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp for marketing automation and email newsletters. MailChimp makes it pretty easy for businesses to not only send better email, but to make something beautiful and connect directly with customers. Take a look at what you can do at inspiration.mailchimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still at 34 patrons. Uh, It's a combined total of $229 per month. Again, a huge thanks for everybody that has already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. We have people that donate through Patreon, of course, but also people donate through PayPal. All of that really helps keep the show going on a regular basis. It really, really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revisionpath and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and it's a great way to support the show on a regular basis. Revision Path is having its first AMA chat on Wednesday, May 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So, for those of you who might not have heard of an AMA, uh, it's short for Ask Me Anything. It's basically we have a special guest, and you, the audience, will ask them questions that they'll answer in real time. Now, our special guest for our very first AMA chat is Kronda Adair, a WordPress consultant and developer in Portland, Oregon. Now, Kronda was also one of the early, early guests of the show way back in 2013. So I'm really glad that she's able to come on now. She's going to be debuting a new course very soon called Websites That Work. So if you have questions about WordPress, running an online business, starting a course, email marketing, anything like that, then come join our Slack community and participate in the AMA Again, that's going to be on Wednesday, May the 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern. To join our Slack community, go to revisionpath.com forward slash Slack. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Dr. Vukosi Marivate, a data scientist at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in South Africa. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: I'm Vukosi Marivate, and I am a a data science researcher, basically, or a data scientist at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, uh, or CSIR. Uh, This is basically almost like a government research lab here in South Africa. Mostly what I work on on a day-to-day basis is trying to kind of find patterns within data and then using those patterns that we find to help people make decisions. And yeah, like with the uh, kind of lot of applications, like software development, machine learning, and lots of data collection and kind of data cleaning and analysis.
0: Speaking of, I guess, machine learning, what exactly is that? Like how do machines quote unquote learn?
1: Like a kind of example I've I've been putting together for a presentation tomorrow is that uh, I think uh, tomorrow is Arduino day at one of the uh, local incubation hubs. And what, I thought of giving as an example is let's say you actually have a garden and you actually want to like you know be really good at gardening meaning you want your plants to grow and look nice or if you have vegetables that they like you know, grow healthily and then you can eat them later on. There's so many variables that go into a plant growing correctly. So one way is that we have kind of rules of thumb of what people should do in their gardens, but another thing that you can actually take into account is what if. Instead, what we would do is actually collect data from people tending to their gardens and putting in different sensors. So you'd have moisture sensors, light sensors, you could have pH sensors in the soil. And as you collect all this data, and then somebody also then keeps track of how fast they're uh, plants are growing could we then find patterns of what are actually the good things that you should do to actually really get your plants to grow so one is that you could do it like by hand and look and say look this person at this place did this and this is what they had so and like you know uh, this means that i should have this ph this amount of moisture per day water at this time like you know use this type of fertilizer all those things but if you think about it in a very like large amounts of data it kind of becomes very unwieldy for like you to think about it in your head. So one thing we did, we've did, we done is that we've said like, oh, we could actually feed this to a computer and a computer could try to fit some model or fit some pattern within there that explains what's actually going on within there. Mm-hmm. And if we can like fit it, fit it very well, we can reuse it to now predict what's going to happen uh, kind of in the future. So the learning part is trying to now have algorithms that can actually be built to find these patterns so it's not simply finding like you know having the pattern itself but then actually building algorithms that try to find these patterns that's where the learning is actually going on
0: okay and this is kind of the same type of work you said that you're doing at the CSIR,
1: uh, sure. like the example I'm giving is basically for. I mean,
0: not about plants at yeah. CSIR, <laughs> but
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, we are. We're always trying to kind of like you know, either one is either you're trying to come up with new algorithms that can do these kind of things very well, or one is you're trying to use the existing algorithms that are out there that we know in new and interesting ways.
0: So, what's like a typical day like for you working there? For me, it's
1: kind of like get to work initially in in the morning is to try and interact. We have a couple of interns who are like with us for like a year. So it's to see them and go through their tasks for the day, see like where they ended up yesterday. So they might be like working on, I think we have a couple who are working on like social media projects. So we're collecting data from social uh, media and trying to kind of reverse engineer a data set of like sensing stuff that's going on just through social media on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's kind of like you have some problems we're trying to solve. So I'll then get back back to my own office instead of being out with interns. And that's uh, where then all of the research projects that we have, it's kind of I'll try to have a schedule for each day of the week about like what problems I'm trying to think about. So for example... Uh, lately, the thing I've been thinking about over the last week is how do you trust what people say you know, on social media? And so this could be that somebody describes an event, and how do you then trust that that event actually happened? When that's not really where we want. Like you know, the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that if then you can trust what a person says about an event, then you can collect all these events that you couldn't gather from other processes before, and then build other models on top of those events actually occurring. Then we kind of have other projects. We're working with other researchers within our organization. So we're working, like, um, interestingly with another team that's kind of building models for predicting kind of what happens in a, uh, like... um, what is it, our uh, national park, so it should be like a safari park uh, in terms of poaching. So we have we have to think about some of that and how do we scale some of the algorithms and machine learning algorithms that we have in times w- into something that runs very quickly and can run with a lot of data on there. And then, yeah, somewhere in between there, I try to then finish my work and then go home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Kevin from our Slack room had a really good question. That actually kind of ties into what you just mentioned. Yeah. He's asked, where do you see the opportunities for applying data mining and or data science to making the world a better place? Like who's employing data scientists for social justice, yeah. for environmental justice, et cetera?
1: That's a very interesting one. So something that happened over the last two years at CSR is that one of my like, colleagues, who's also a good friend, looked at the model that's happening at the University of Chicago. It's called something. Uh, it's called data science for social good where they take in problems from either government or like, you know, um, uh, non-profits and also companies that maybe might be doing some interesting work that impacts on the society and then get like data science or aligned students or like it could be students in the computer sciences, political science, math, all those things to try and solve some of these problems that these organizations actually bring up. So at CSR, we have a similar kind of a program that we started called side, and we do the same thing. We kind of seek out some students and then we get some problems that either are submitted by partners, so people, like these are organizations outside the CSR, or we have problems kind of internally that we create. So all of that is kind of, as I said, to enhance decision making. So mm-hmm. you could have a challenge in society. So one example that some might colleagues uh, tackled is if you came up with a model of what a perfect like medical clinic should be that serves the public in a country like South Africa, how can they you evaluate all the clinics that we have within the country and then come up with a way to actually figure out what, or, like how you should allocate resources in terms of the health department, for example and then giving and then creating tools that then you would give to officials in the health department to make uh, their decisions for that we had one where we said hey how can then we look at we're trying to enhance public safety can we look at social media as a source of like public safety data so can we identify when there's like a car crash somewhere can we identify if there might have been a crime somewhere and from there build a whole new data set that makes us understand Public safety in a kind of real-time way. If somebody describes that something just happened, and that's why I said like we we want to actually make sure, like you know, uh, actually say, uh, actually confirm that an event actually happened, and all of these then can be added and given back to like either organizations that work within these areas or to directly to the kind of uh, governmental organizations that can have an extra layer of information that they can use to make more decisions. So there are a lot of people in this kind of, in in this data science area who are trying to tackle problems that also face society because yeah, you just don't want to be in a lab.
0: Yeah. I remember I, this was, I don't know, maybe not too long ago where I was seeing here in the U S where people were analyzing tweet data around certain events or social movements, for example, the black lives matter movement or something like that. People would analyze kind of the data behind the tweets to I guess, get some sort of predictive model on organizing or things of that nature. It's good to hear that, you know, there are organizations out there that are trying to use this type of of information for social good and not just, like you said, staying in the lab. Yeah. What kind of technical skills would someone need if they want to get started with data science or or basically what you're doing? How would someone get started with that? What do they need to know?
1: Sure. The teams we try to build, like, try being the word is, we're trying to get multidisciplinary, but the base, a lot of the time, ends up being kind of the, like, you know, mathematical science aligned area. So a lot of people have backgrounds, uh, like, in either computer science, electrical engineering, mathematics, and statistics. Like, I have two master's students that I'm co-supervising, and they're both, like, uh, from no, one is from a statistics background, one is from a computer science background. But then even within the team, we have a lot of people who are computer scientists. The reason I I try to emphasize the multidisciplinary is that sometimes you look at problems and if you have people who think about in the same way, you're kind of trying, you're always going to try and come up with solutions that are very similar. So you might want to bring in somebody who's very different, maybe somebody from the social sciences who you can look at the same problem and, and then come up with different ideas about what actually might be happening. From there, ultimately, I think people would have to know how to program because a lot of the things we do, you end up either trying to get data and then you get the data and the data is never in the the form that you need in order to either push it through a a machine learning model to, to try and learn some patterns. And as such, yeah, the programming is big. We are proudly using like a Python scientific stack. So everything is open source. And then we also hope in the near future to also start kind of contributing back into that into that community with things that when we find gaps and we know that we need those things, that we will also develop little modules that we can give back. Outside that, yeah, it's kind of some people don't like this. You kind of have to have an idea about a wide array um of um, topics so I'm not a statistician at all but I enjoy actually talking to statistics academics and also uh, students within that area to understand kind of what they care about and the reason being is that uh, some of the concepts that they worry about then also feedback into how we look at look at problems so the same thing then with computer science you would kind of uh, kind of try to uh, try to keep abreast of like some of the... The big changes that happen, especially in the the machine learning community and there's people who are doing things like large-scale learning and also large-scale visualization because every once in a while something that you thought was impossible, somebody figures out and then very quickly people start using it within the field and you also kind of need to know that that's kind of happening because something that maybe you weren't able to really attempt a year ago, but now you can. So, yeah, for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's just like, you know, the mathematical sciences is where you would want to be and be a hacker program.
0: Well, yeah, it sounds like there's also a lot of sharing of methods and data. Once someone finds something that really works, it kind of spreads out throughout the community. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Like, I think if you look back, maybe right now, the the big thing is the kind of deep learning uh, work. If we think about what's happened maybe uh, for me over the five years or so, the last five years, it was uh, very quickly, once it looked like we can build these large models with deep learning, a lot of people kind of threw themselves in there. and there's been a lot of spinoffs that then have become very useful to the whole community within there. And I think it's uh, with a lot of like you know research or academic communities it, it it is true. It's just that now information spreads so much faster than like you know ten or twenty years ago that mm-hmm. things then propagate.
0: Here's another question from our Slack community. Python has been a common language in data science, but there's been this sort of long running divide between Python 2 and Python 3. What's your advice for newcomers who want to learn how to navigate around that? And also, what role do you think data science has had on this divide within the Python community?
1: Oh, yeah, this this is like a very dangerous question to answer. (laughs) Oh man so uh, the the caveat I'm gonna give there is that I haven't had a lot of experience with Python as yet. so the last time which is maybe I think two two years ago maybe one and a half years ago when I, I attempted to do anything is oh maybe three years a I was worried about kind of how many of the developers of the current tools that we have had actually converted their libraries to working on Python 3 that I hit and I remember I think tweeting with a couple of other people and like having conversations on Twitter about it and they also felt the same way and we were like I'm not going to move from Python 2 to Python 3 until the things that I use every day kind of are there and if they are there but they're not like fully usable hopefully 80% of the things are there and then maybe I could help fill the 20% gap or something like that. I think a lot has changed again between the last two or three years moving into Python 3 and there are more and more libraries that that have joined the party and it might just be if the kind of the rumors are that like even ubuntu then like you know the next version might ship with python 3 being default instead of python 2 i can see it very quickly that being that advice you would give is for people to actually learn python 3 instead of python 2 as a current uh, like day-to-day for us we run our whole stack on python 2 and also the tools that we use are like you know if we're using kind of hadoop if we're using other like external libraries or special tools that then run on Python, most of them for us are, are, are still very mature with Python two, and maybe you asking this question makes me feel like I should start reading up more on Python three and trying to look at uh, kind of some <laughs> of the gains we might get. And I what I normally do is use a guinea pig, which is normally an intern, to see if then they could set up an environment with Python three on <laughs> there and then we could evaluate it over a couple of months and seeing if it actually improves our like kind of our workflow.
0: So one thing that I wanted to ask about particularly is there's a quote on your website where you say, I build communities online with impact offline. What are some of the things that CSIR is doing to make that kind of impact offline?
1: So I don't think that's directly C- CSR. That is more my own personal thing. So I'm part of a couple of groups outside the CSR and my normal kind of data science stuff. I work with a couple of teams. So here it means organization. So one is that currently I'm working with my high school alumni association, which I just became president of as in January. And what happened is that at the beginning of me interacting with this alumni association, everybody was very much all over the country. I was actually in the U.S. when most of this was actually most of the building of the alumni society was actually ha- was happening. So just for some context, my high school is in a little village in the north, uh, like northwest of North uh, Victoria. And now, what we wanted to do is like you you went to like you no, know, the school was it was in a village, but it produced a lot of very good uh, graduates who went on and and done uh, exceptional things and now people are trying to see how can we form a group of people to go back and actually then give back to the future generations that will be going through there. So Mm -hmm. what I've learned through interacting with groups like this is that even though we might be geographically in different places, there are ways for us to work together and to build communities online and then have the impact being (laughs) offline. So. This then requires to get this group of people to work is to use to find tools or develop tools that allow them to communicate, allow them to plan and allow them to execute in such a way that that offline impact is actually felt. So we do things where we either have like career days at the school, but most of it is organized online. We've been reaching out to more and more alumni. So there we like we've been I've been very kind of data driven there we've figuring out like you know when to send messages at the right time so uh, like you know mm-hmm. I'm so sort of kind of a mailchimp fan because it allows you to analyze a lot of data as you're sending things out uh, figuring out what actually works like what kind of picture on Instagram actually gets the most likes and then how then you grow your mailing list given, <laughs> given those likes what works on Facebook and what works on Twitter. So all of that requires some data crunching because we're also always looking at that and saying how do we get to more and more people who are alumni who didn't have the chance to connect with the school after they left? And yeah, so I'm, I'm part of groups like that. I'm a, like a, with the World Economic Forum Global Shapers who are for Twane, which is the area where Pretoria is, and it's a kind of same thing. I, when I joined in there, I told them that I, one of my biggest things has been to learn how to work with teams that are geographically dispersed, but then getting them to become actually effective. In, in, in delivering on their uh, kind of on their goals, on the, which most of the time are offline things that they're trying to do.
0: So let's go back because you mentioned the village that you you went to high school with. I'm assuming that's also the same village that you grew up in. That's just north of Pretoria.
1: Um, no, I, I, okay, so yeah, the part, I guess the wording is would be a different. I grew up in a township, uh, which is right, okay. n- right next to the village. So a township here, I guess, given the history, was uh, when kind of. We had apartheid and then apartheid, and we had kind of forced removals of families. So my grandparents were uh, on my both sides. My mother and were moved to this area that was built specifically kind of for black people and these were these townships and that's where I grew up mostly. but then there was a village not far from that township where my high school Soho high school actually is located.
0: Now as I was kind of doing my research, I came across a fairly recent radio interview that you did. <laughs> So you mentioned you grew up in a township. Yeah. Both of your parents are doctors. Yeah. What would you say is kind of the best thing that you owe them in terms of how they helped shape you to where you are today?
1: For me, it's like a, the the work ethic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think yeah, it's something that I think, like I will always be thankful for. Within there, like they like having somebody like that to see how, what the trails they've blazed and what they've been able to achieve. And also like, you know, in, in ways mentor you and also knowing like, you know, how hard work actually impacts your, like, you know, some control of your, (laughs) of of your life. That's, that's something. Uh, Yeah. I'll be thankful. And they, they've also, they were very big into enrichment and doing other things outside, just being at school. Like, you know, learn, 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 learn further, not just like what you do in class.
0: Right. Yeah. And so you got your bachelor's and your master's there yeah. in South Africa at the University of Witwatersrand. Yeah, Vets yeah. university. How did that? <laughs> yeah, how did that kind of help you? I guess once you started getting out there in the working world, because I don't know, did you go to and do any work before you came to the states to do your PhD, or was it kind of a straight shot?
1: Yeah, I did my bachelor's in electrical engineering, and but a sub, like that we have a kind of a sub-program within that called information engineering. So that's where I got my first kind of real-world like, experience with kind of machine learning and and AI and also kind of data and things that have to do with data. So I wasn't like a classical electrical engineer who just deals with power and mm-hmm. electricity, but then there was also all electronics, but then there was also this machine learning work. And so for my master's, then I focused... Then on machine learning, uh, specifically a subfield called reinforcement learning, which I guess for a lot of people recently probably became now a big buzzword, given the the work by DeepMind, uh, which is owned by Google, on playing Go. Um, there's a lot of uh, reinforcement learning in there. And after that, that's actually in 2009 I started at at CSR. So very weirdly, I have a, like a long working. I stayed at CSR, but I stayed at CSR from January 2009 until I actually had to then start uh, at Rutgers uh, that fall, which was in September. So I was there only for eight okay. months. And then I went on like the sabbatical for five and a half years to do my PhD. So I, I didn't quit.
0: That's a long sabbatical. <laughs> five and a half years? Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was that shift like culturally going from South Africa to the US?
1: There was a couple of things. So one, I was leaving my, like, at, at that time was my fiance. And uh-huh. like, you know, we didn't know how we we're going to handle that at the beginning. Uh, so there was a lot of that.
0: T- Five and a half years. <laughs> no. <yellows. laughs>
1: no, she she ended up joining me kind of, uh, she she was finishing off her undergrad. And uh-huh. once that was kind of sorted out, you like, uh, she worked for a bit and then decided like, you know, she moved over to, to New Jersey too. Oh,
0: that's good. Yeah.
1: That's so good. She, she was with me for most of that time <laughs> for four years. Uh, <laughs> that was a tough one. but. Yeah, it's, it's like I'd been to a, a leadership summer camp in like 2002 in upstate New York, mm-hmm. Camp Rising Sun. That was like two and a half months there. But even then, like, you know, I had a bit of like, oh, this is what the U.S. is like, this is what people in the U.S. are like. But moving to a country is different from just visiting it for a short period of time. So yeah. there was a lot of kind of, yeah, small like cultural things. And normally the small things are, are the things that get to you understood, the store. like people not being able to place where you're from, Speaking in a way that, like you know, people don't understand in sense, and sometimes it's 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 very odd, and sometimes can actually get very frustrating. But at the same time, I actually uh, came to very quickly appreciate the American kind of higher education system. It's it, like you know, all systems have their own faults, but I was really really amazed by the diversity in terms of the content of the things that people are doing, and yeah, it was it was a tough time switching from, as I said, like from this electrical engineering kind of background to computer science, because then there's different things that computer scientists worry about than electrical engineers, even if they look like they're in similar areas. So that was like my first year was adjusting to that, that now I have to be a computer scientist.
0: Well, you know, I can tell you, especially that part where you're saying people can't necessarily place where you're from, like when you're speaking that happens just in the U S as well. Like especially, (laughs) (laughs) especially if you're from the South and you go and visit up North and people can't really, not to necessarily say they can't really place you, but there will also be kind of these certain, I guess, mental expectations or or mental thoughts about you because of, you know, kind of what your voice is like. You may have a bit of an accent. You may talk a little slower or something like that. Yeah. But it sounds like you kind of got acclimated pretty quickly.
1: Uh yeah, it, it took a bit, as, as every like any international student will tell you. It's right, like some tough times at the beginning, and then you you kind of get get through it, and then start building your your like you know your own life. In, right. in, yeah, in your in your new country. So yeah.
0: What what kind of took you the longest to to get a hold of?
1: I think this things like the the day to day social things. After a while, you 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 got used to that. But then uh, one of the other things, I think. Maybe sometimes it's not really appreciated. And I think it's not even just being an international student. It's also like doing PhD programs. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into that. And like a lot of people come from the background of, hey, like, you know, I was doing good at school in the past. And now I want to go to your PhD program so I can also go and become an academic and all those things. And then once you're in it, you kind of now it's like, you know, it becomes this almost war against yourself (laughs) where it's like you're working and it's like a long thing of doing research and learning kind of the methods and the small little tricks and it takes a long time it's not something that is like automatic for some people i think that there are people i've, I've noted that they, they work and they get it and for like you know i think most people is like you you have to really work at it to get those things and also then contribute back towards academia and knowing that it's not like a like a whole thing that everybody's brilliant and they're all going to be brilliant is something that's comforting in when the days like you know the dark days of like you look back at a week like Mm -hmm. what did I do this week (laughs) and (laughs) I don't see I seem to be standing in one place yeah because I remember like uh, kind of when you try to find out the statistics like I think it's isn't like 40% of people drop out of PhD programs so like before when you go in you don't think that you just think everybody's gonna go through because you've got the (laughs) cleverest people coming in and starting this PhD program. So kind of getting used to, getting used to it and like making sure you, know, you and your advisor have a good relationship, you have a good relationship with your lab partners and then you can have a support system that can help you when you get stuck in places and making connections outside the, your immediate lab to, to, to help, that's, that's something that, yeah, that took a while to, to, to kind of build up.
0: What keeps you kind of motivated and inspired? Like what gives you purpose during times like that?
1: I guess I'm a person who likes learning new things. And then on top of that, being then able to kind of find patterns is something that interests me a lot. And so I'm, I'm always trying to, even I found myself now, even like when I'm home, I start thinking about something or a, a problem and I go like, oh, what data could I collect to actually try and answer that question? So it's something that I, I know now I do kind of, unconsciously I noted I was telling I was was talking to some of the students who are in our unit that like it's a good thing to kind of know what drives you and I found this out where uh, last year uh, after I I, like rejoined the CSR I noted that I think there was a period of maybe two or three weeks where I didn't code and I actually got depressed and I didn't notice it until there was like one Saturday where Something like, you know, one of those things came up. I was saying, oh, yeah, I should actually try and answer this question. I think it had to do with analyzing some kind of marriage data from from South Africa. And, like, you know, I opened up my laptop and then I started, co- uh, like, you know, my Python stuff and started coding. And I, like, you know, within a few minutes, I felt happy. And, <laughs> 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 and that's what I noted. I'm like, I should find a way that I'm always kind of coding or in and around this. I shouldn't, like, you know. So I've, I've kind of, that's keeps me keeps me going and trying to answer these things yeah so so yeah so if you kind of follow me on twitter you'll see that every once in a while i'm sharing hey i'm trying to collect this data can you help us out because yeah there's these questions that keep on coming up
0: who else out there in the field that's kind of doing the same type of work do you admire
1: let's see i think there's a guy called uh, randall olson uh he's very interested i think he's in the kind of more biology it might be wrong. It might be planned stuff. But he does a lot of work, kind of on understanding or visualizing data. And like, I know I'm not a visualization person, so I can just sit there and admire uh, without, <laughs> like, because I'm like, oh, they, you, you like, you know, he can actually go and do this. And I think he just finished his PhD, uh, also, and he's going on to his next things. But then that's been very, kind of, very interesting. In general, I've been really impressed by some of the work that's come out of kind of DeepMind, the Google company. And mm-hmm. yeah, kind of what what they're doing with reinforcement learning. Then there, it's it's like yeah, you you look back at it and go like, okay, like a few years from, uh, ago, we didn't really think that this is where we would be. So that's also been very interesting.
0: What is the best advice that you've been given about the work that you do? I mean, and we're talking from education up until now, your work that you're doing with CSIR.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's like don't overpromise. I don't know if that's the right wording. Yeah, I think it's, it's something like that. Like if you go through the history of like machine learning and AI, there's been a lot of times where pe- people have gone and really promised a lot of things that weren't really possible just because there's a there's a bit of like, you know, you see a black box or you start we start understanding some of how this works and then we start going out there and saying this solves everything. Data science is not going to solve everything. Machine learning is not going to solve everything. And we kind of have to know our limits in such a way that we don't end up kind of destroying opportunities for other people. So I have to be cognizant of the fact that if I go and see somebody who's either a client through CSR or somebody who's kind of seeking me out privately to talk about the challenge that they have and the ideas that they might have in terms of solving that, that I immediately go like, oh, I am pretty sure that the thing that, like, you know, this new method will definitely solve your problem until you really understand what's actually going on. And to do that, you kind of have to immerse yourself in the area to read a lot about it because you're not an expert. And most of the things that we end up looking at, at the beginning, you're not an expert in that area. So you have to kind of try to understand the language that the people speak uh, in those areas. So uh, for part of my PhD uh, was like with medical data. So to gain that respect, you had to now learn how people talk about things Mm-hmm. Because those same words you think you understand when you say them to like a medical community mean something else. And as such, you kind of stayed away from ever promising things. You just said, hey, let me just immerse myself in your world and see <laughs> like, you know, where there could be interesting applications for us to work on. And let's work on them and show me where I'm wrong and tell me where I'm wrong. Like, don't just let me like, you know, go ahead and do things. And then after like, you know, five years, I find out that everything actually was wrong.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Who have been some of the the people that have helped you out along the way? Have you had any mentors or advisors or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I guess my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. I guess not professor <laughs> Michael Littman, who's now at Brown. The way he looks at problems and also the way he presents some of the like uh, his work is, has been very interesting, and I've actually looked up to that a lot. Like you know, I, I, I in some cases you try to be like, oh, I, I really want to to be able to do that the way Michael kind of does it. So that's been in the um, a kind of like you know my PhD time. Even when I did my masters, I had a, a professor uh, Marala who is a almost like a kind of a, what is it in the yeah, it's a dean in, in, in the U.S. universities. He was my master's advisor in machine learning, but then with him I've learned a lot about, like, you know, how the power of building up your networks within the field. I'm not really in academia. I'm in research. Uh, but then his, the, thing, the connections I made even when I was uh, uh, working under him have been things that I've been able to kind of rely on when I came back and actually meeting people and understanding how you keep those connections going.
0: So after you you got your PhD at Rutgers uh you moved back to South Africa back to CSIR working there was that a big shift as well kind of going back from being in the US for that long back to to South Africa
1: Yeah it was a it was a tough one like the the thing that most international kind of students think about then is like oh I could just get a job <laughs> <Like in the laughs> US to stay and Yeah, we had our things like, you know, I was like, um, it's, it's like, what is it, the two body problem? It was me and my wife and I thought, oh, yeah, we should go back. She can try out some things that she wanted to do in, in engineering and I can go back to CSR and try out some things there. So, yeah, there was, what is it, uh, like re atlamatization ad- that happens. So there's like things where now, hey, family, we like you know reconnecting with family, reconnecting with yeah. networks, and also making new networks in the area. And also the tech space is 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 not like I had spent more time and just like you know in and around the kind of U.S. tech space than the South African one. So that was another thing was now trying to go back and now understand how the tech arena works in South Africa. As, as opposed to the U.S. So uh, in the U.S. I had interned at Google and I'd interned also at Newton in, in, in New York. So Google, I was in Mountain View. And even then in between that, I kind of started following uh, how tech companies, uh, especially the startup world works and the ones that are connected with machine learning. And now coming back to South Africa, was like, how do I get to a point where I can understand it in a similar way um, so that like you know I can also try and make my impact as time went on? So though that, that was also very different. you find that in kind of uh, South Africa and maybe a couple of other African countries or even developing countries, there's a, a lot less risk taking as compared to uh, what I saw kind of in, in, in Silicon Valley and also in New York. So the way people treat uh, things like startup companies is, is very different to that and also what the funding is like. So in, in that case then, and also we don't have as great a pipeline or as big a pipeline, maybe as big a pipeline as what the U.S. would have. Like, in the U.S., you have so many education institutions, so many people doing PhDs and master's. So there's a, literally a lot of people coming out of that, even though, like, you know, the like U.S. companies will say, no, we don't have enough graduates coming and taking yeah. all these jobs we have to offer. But South Africa has way less than that. So, uh, for example, the program I told you before for Data Science for Social Good, in the U.S., in the University of Chicago, it takes PhD students. In, in South Africa, at the CSR, our program actually takes undergrads who are seniors like you know it's okay. yeah to bring in that because we we wouldn't if that like uh, the the program at university of chicago it takes like i think Thirty to forty PhD students. I'll be very lucky to get thirty and, like thirty to forty PhD students to come spend <laughs> three months with us, like you know, in South Africa. Um, that that's kind of almost an impossibility. So, it's it's a it's a very interesting thing. So, uh, once people graduate, uh, all the mal- big multinational companies will just go- gobble them up. So, those same t- same kind of people then moving into like more risky startups probably becomes less uh, less likely.
0: And I guess sort of speaking about that pipeline. Yeah. I'm asking this because you mentioned earlier that you kind of are doing some things around your high school where you're talking to the younger generation. Yeah. What do you think it's like for them in terms of getting excited about technology and wanting to to kind of be in this tech industry?
1: So what you find is that there's like there's a lot of kids or students who kind of like are seeing it grow, and they're seeing like you know uh, the, the the thing now is apps. You see all these apps, and yeah. these made them somewhere, and you get this like. Kind of hunger to say, I want to build that. So uh, I've seen with a lot, there's a, 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 a couple of people who are working on like coding boot camps and all those type of things. And you can see that the kids are very much uh, into that. So in most cases, when I meet young people and they say they're interested, I was like, oh yeah, just find where there could be uh, coding boot camps and places that you can go during, during your, your breaks. Uh, school breaks so that you could actually then start knowing what actually to do that. Because we're interested in that. Unfortunately, like the CSR, we're looking at people with like masters and PhDs. So what I've had to do is kind of I've I've spent the last year of being back then trying to understand where the pipeline begins with uh, kids like high school or finishing high school and how we get them to a point where now the researchers are candidate researchers that we can then use within our space and then connecting with people who work within all these different parts of the pipeline and trying to connect them to each other so here comes the whole like, yeah uh, com- building communities online again uh, that's been something where i've reached out to like to people like that and then always trying to connect them to each other um, to each other when i meet them to say oh i know somebody else Who's kind of might be a good feeder for you? Like you run a system, you run a thing where you want people to come do hackathons, and you're normally looking for university students. Well, there's another person who does a coding bootcamp, where like you know they teach basic Python or something like that. So it would be great that once people know basic Python, they then might then want to come for a hackathon. Then after they've done like you know done with their hackathon, maybe they want to go and do an internship for like a year or with somebody then who will then help them become like you know a much more skilled within the area so i think there's a lot of that that's needed instead of it being in some cases people look at it as competitive of saying i'm offering this and i have to compete with everybody else but i think given how small a smaller the ecosystem is it's better to just build together than be literally competing for the same resources
0: so for you when you were growing up where did your spark for all of this come from
1: so, I think Sam was watching my uncle, like, uh, my mother's side, and he he's an uh, electrical engineer. And kind of the whole, I, I, being from a kind of family that's medical, and he, he, like, you know, my mother would say, oh, he solves problems. And he wakes, like, you know, he wakes up every morning and he has all these problems that he has to solve in designing things. And, and so, and then as I was growing up, like, like getting your first computer and seeing it and Using it and going, okay, it's fine. I can click on things, but then when can I get to a point where I now build things inside there and seeing how those? So unfortunately, never had the opportunity to really get into programming at high school. So I only started programming when I actually started university and like uh, really enjoyed doing it in my undergrad. And now mm-hmm. I enjoy it even more as a researcher.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned that how you kind of just started coding in university, or at least starting to get the the tools, so you could begin to code then uh there's a a piece that was in bloomberg business week here in the us i think it was back in february or so that was talking about how companies are looking to historically black colleges and universities to try to bring more black people into the tech field and one of the things that they pointed out was kind of that disparity of when students are able to really get a hands-on feel for the industry and how it is often later than their white counterparts, for example. Like, they may have had computers in the home at a young age and been exposed to it. Whereas for black students, maybe they just learned about it in high school. Or, you know, in your case, they just really had that opportunity in university. I know for me, I mean, I grew up in the deep south. Yeah. And I didn't use a computer for, like, doing, uh, you know, like, typing term papers and stuff like that. Yeah. Probably until... Like my later years of high school, like I started out on a typewriter. Yeah. I, I, had, I had a typewriter all through middle school through about, I'd say, half to three quarters yeah. of high school and then had access to a computer because a, a university donated like a, a supercomputer lab to our school. But then once I got to college, there were so many and I went to a historically black college. There were still so many other people who had access at much earlier ages, and I kind of felt like I was playing catch up, yeah, in a way. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, uh, it's 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 actually quite interesting. So when I was and uh, doing my undergrad, I was also like in the uh, what you we had these concepts of having kind of a a council for each degree program. So electrical engineering had like a council and the council had like an uh, officers in there. So you have a president. And then for a while, I, 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 I spent time as an education officer. Uh, so one of the things you, you kind of had to deal with if you're working. So as an education officer, what happens is that your class year, so either your freshman or you're sophomore, I think us will just be first year, second year, third year and fourth year, you would then solicit feedback for your lecturers or professors, and uh, one of the bigger like challenges that were actually came up a lot, and in some cases that is heartening for me because uh, they're still happening in some of the universities. You would have uh, a kind of a professor assign a a, a kind of uh, assignment. And then say, oh, you have to do it on a computer. And then you would have uh, – how it would normally happen is that you would have a student who's been assigned to pair up with another student uh, coming to see you and saying, well, I'm having problems because my partner actually doesn't want to come to the, like, the lab, the computer lab, and I don't understand what's going on. And then you find out later on is that because that student has never had an opportunity to interact with the computer, so they're scared of it. Yeah. Right. And then this is something like, you're like, oh, but you're electrical engineering, like how, <laughs> like, how are you going to survive? And it's a tough, very tough thing to go within that. Like in, in some cases, I, I, I'm jealous of the generation even right now in South Africa, because there's more and more exposure that's happening. It's not covering all the places. South Africa also has a lot of remote places and you have students who are still uh, showing up at universities without having like really had good interactions. And also we, we don't really have like computer science in school. Uh, most of mm-hmm. the schools in the rural areas and the townships aren't really equipped or even have the resources to have computer science. We don't even have enough computer science teachers uh, like, yeah, to be teaching in high school. So that that is still a real challenge you know, for us. Uh, it's it's not something that's, that's going to go away. And yeah, um, trying to, for us, Also reach out and be like, you know, going out and and talking about our work and what we do is also trying to get more people interested in the area just so that they can then start asking the questions like, so what do I do now that I'm interested?
0: Well, and this is probably a good question to ask since you've spent time here in the U.S. What can we do to kind of help out with efforts that are going on there to, to help kind of build that pipeline or to get more people interested?
1: Within the U.S. system or the South African system?
0: in the south african system
1: there's a lot i just like i think there's a lot that's already being done or like uh, i guess maybe being attempted to be done but sometimes maybe we should take a step back so you have like huge multinationals just throwing money at this and saying we're going to host all these things like i don't know how many hackathons there are (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere. But then sometimes I keep on asking myself, maybe it's like, you know, from this kind of data science thing, I was like, what's really the impact? Have we actually figured out the connections between the things that are being done and how it actually, and because the reason I, I keep on describing this pipeline and saying we want to make connections is that sometimes I argue with with people and saying like so just imagine you'd go take a child from a very rural area that's very disconnected like you know internet is maybe just through a mobile phone but then it's also very limited and then you bring them to your organization and they get immersed for two weeks in just building electronics, programming things, building very simple Android apps with some of um, the little uh, kind of uh, tools that are out there without really needing to program a lot. And then after that two weeks, they go back. And there's, mm-hmm. like, I, like, I keep on saying, I would feel hoodwinked.
0: <laughs> You're basically describing my childhood. But, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean.
1: Like, you know, I would be hoodwinked because now, like, there's no connection. So I always ask, I'm like, why don't you make local connections in the places where these kids live so that you know that when they go back, you're at least trying to now kind of build up a group of people who will continue on because it'll be very frustrating for them now to go in. Yes, there will be a couple of them who will persevere and then after that go like, hey, I'm going to go up in this area and then I'm going to go out and go to university and do this. But some of them will really feel like, you know, disheartened after a while because they won't be able to really explore the, yeah. that part of themselves, yeah. So it's I, it's a, I think there's probably going to be... A, the time coming very soon where it's going to be like we have to do some introspection about how we maximize on this unfortunately in some cases this goes against kind of the incentive systems that some of the people are sponsoring these things they they just want to like you know hey i did this it was big everybody saw it
0: <laughs> yeah they just want to want to throw money at the problem yeah. essentially and hope yeah. that it sticks
1: yeah where the sticks but then whether those things are actually Really impactful over a long a long term is because um, I I would venture the same. It's the same same thing in in I think remember when hackathons became a became a thing. Not 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 that I'm saying it's the hackathons are the problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even in, like in the US, it's it's like all these things are like oh yeah, we're gonna build this thing over two days, three days, and some companies are gonna be interested into buying whatever we come up with. And uh, what I learned very quickly, I think I went I went to one hackathon just to see it. I'm like whoa, oh, uh, the way that people write code here is really bad. And this is nothing that's gonna like last over that. So uh, when I actually end up going to hackathons, especially during my PhD, it was for me to just have time, like the two days or three days to think about something I was interested in in that was not part of my PhD and just to sit there and like for like two days and not <laughs> not be worried about my research and not necessarily mm-hmm. code up anything by the end of that. That two days, but then just being in a place where everybody's frantically working, so you can just concentrate on one thing, which is like you know it's it's, it's very precious. It's, it's, most of the time, you don't have time to do that. You always there's always a, a thousand and one things pulling at you.
0: Yeah, I know here in the U.S. I mean, there are so many hackathons and and startup yeah. events and things like that, and it kind of makes you wonder: is any of this really making an impact? Yeah, <laughs> like our companies just kind of throwing money at these big problems don't get me wrong like big problems with diversity big problems with the pipeline etc but our companies just kind of throwing money at these problems hoping that it will stick and then these events are going on but it's it, it's kind of just hard to see what's what the impact is i mean i was talking to a friend and he kind of asked me like well how many of these events need to happen before change really kind of starts to happen yeah. and i don't, i mean i don't know the answer to that they're still going on and we're not saying that they shouldn't go on but kind of being able to like you said make those connections yeah. is important so you can at least try to see if it's if it's making an impact in some way.
1: I think some of the things is just they're hard. So I remember I think I don't know if maybe 4 years ago talking to like a I think it was a black yeah, a black student or I think called Polly Princeton and they were in computer science, but then they were like, yeah, I'm about to graduate, but I'm getting out of this area. And you're like, why? Like, you know, because for me, it's, <laughs> it's like, you are like, <laughs> like getting out now, you went to Princeton, you did computer science, you are just going to like, you know, have a very interesting. You're what we need, basically. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, very interesting uh, kind of experiences just if you apply yourself and say, hey, I'm going to apply, like, you know, you could choose to do your master's, you could do choose to be a PhD, or you can go into the startup world or go into these things. And like one of the things that took me and my wife back when he said like he didn't feel that he fit in, in, the, in the, with the culture. So wow. his time and like, you know, hopefully I don't get attacked by Princeton. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, he felt this was the thing like he felt like he didn't fit in. And I think there's a lot of that. And these are harder things to kind of address. And, and I know there's a, there's a lot of work now that some people are doing like uh, great work and now trying to kind of change some of the color. Like I, I follow Code2040 a lot in some of their things because I think their um, kind of approach to doing this of saying get people immersed and then also build a network that they can then go be it like, you know, removes kind of these barriers about culture within that. Because, yeah, like I, I know I'm a nerdy person. And in, because I'm very nerdy, I fit in easier <laughs> than mm-hmm. like you know most of my brothers and sisters out there. But uh, I've seen it where you you kind of people that all those cultural references that are made within those areas it might not necessarily be things that like you know people uh, grow up with, and as such they feel yeah. isolated, or yeah. you know I'll be outside that 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 area and it becomes harder. Uh, to, yeah,
0: yeah. I. Totally. I feel that 100%. Absolutely. I mean, it's important for the sustainability of this field, of course, that we try to make sure that it is not just diverse, but also inclusive. And I think a lot of what you're speaking to, and particularly what the young man at Princeton is speaking to, is this feeling of inclusivity. Like, it's one thing if you kind of, I don't know, like, check off the base requirements for being in the field. Like, you've got a degree, you've got the aptitude and the skills, etc. But, like, do you feel like you're a part of this industry? Yeah. I know this is maybe a fairly recent talk that I heard that was talking about women in the tech industry and how for, I think 40% of the women are in the tech industry for like less than 10 years. And I think as we both know, I mean, our field in in tech is a young field compared to many other professions. It's growing fast, but it's very young. And so when you have, you know, what is essentially, I don't want to say half, I mean, but certainly no men and women, you have that, entire gender of people that are are getting out of the field in such a high turnover rate you know that's when you really have to start looking and seeing what what are we doing yeah that's making this happen and how can we fix it
1: yeah true
0: where do you kind of see yourself in the next like five years or so
1: that's a tough one i <laughs> like i guess it's it's like i'm trying to initially you kind of do a broad thing and I'm I think I'm gonna try and get to a point where there's this, a few focus areas that I'll I'll actually then get back kind of into. So that that's what I would I would hope for, and then see how I can then develop those. So if it's if it ends up being that I like you know I uh, I get a very big interest in just solving one problem and hopefully has very good outcomes for society uh, i might just do that for a bit uh, and then and, and see maybe in the startup world maybe in the world between the research and and the startups there might be somewhere where i'd, I'd, I'd want to be but then yes uh, in, in ultimately in the base being kind of applications of the data science world with, with machine learning being in there
0: well just to kind of wrap things up here where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online
1: oh sure so, so i have a website that i kind of regularly update especially the blog side of it so that uh, vima.co.za so vima.co uh, dot, uh Z-A or dot .za <laughs> mm-hmm. as uh, it will be there and i'm more active like uh, on on twitter so at, at Vukosi. V-U-K-O-S-I, that, yeah, you can send me stuff and then I'll reply and uh, I ended up doing a lot of crowdsourcing that way, uh, I think. Now, nice. <laughs> now I started noticing yeah. that people are also, like, you know, they follow you and then when you say something, they then reply to you and when you ask something, people go off and do other things and then come back to you and like, oh, I went and did this. So it's been very interesting. Um, Twitter is in- a yeah, very interesting platform. Hopefully they start making nice. money, money soon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Vukosi Marivate, thank you so much again for taking time out of your day for, for first speaking with me about the work that you're doing at CSIR, for kind of telling me about your journey from a young kid and then going to school in South Africa and then coming to the U.S. and then going back to South Africa. Uh, but I think also I think what, what really comes across above all of that is just kind of your passion for, for learning and for like asking questions and trying to find solutions. I think that's something in this field is is paramount like i mean skills are important but you also kind of have to have that hunger to like stay curious and always kind of want to learn more and i think that passion really is is exemplified through a lot of the things that you said today so thank you so much again for coming on the show man i appreciate it yeah thank you and that's it for this week Big thanks to Dr. Vicosi Maravate, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Dr. Maravate and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, for example, if you watched Uh, the F8 Developers Conference they talked about origami that they're going to be releasing later on this year. Uh, They share what they've learned on Medium through a number of different essays and they give back to the design community. So learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps us get new listeners, helps us move up those podcast rankings for design, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision and pledge your support. Pledge level start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.